We usually have incorporated the topics that were covered at CROI into the actual presentations, but this year we're, we're doing a little bit differently where we're having our first speaker, uh, Trip Gulick from Cornell University in New York, uh, to present a, an overview of CROI. Uh, and, and we coordinated it <clears throat> such that um, any topic being covered by another speaker will not be covered by Trip, so you don't get duplication of information. So he's going to sort of provide the safety net of information of the top topics that were talked about at CROI that were not um, uh, covered in any of our other speeches today. So uh, Tripp is a, a repeat offender here at this meeting. It's wonderful to have him back. He's the chief of infectious diseases at the New York Hospital in Cornell University, and uh, he's going to give us a CROI update. Dr. Hewitt. Thanks very much, Mike. It's great to be back in Atlanta. I flew down from New York yesterday, and I arrived in Atlanta. It reminded me that when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Albany, Georgia, and every year we would fly down for the summer, and they would always pick us up in Atlanta. And once when I was a precocious child, my grandmother picked, picked us up, and I said, why do we always fly into Atlanta? And she said, honey, when you're from Georgia, you can't go to hell without going through Atlanta. <laughs> do they still say that? <laughs> so I, I have fond memories. Um, as Mike said, what I'd like to do is do a CROI overview and focus on ART. And just to show you that this course is really constantly communicating and changing, my slides are slightly different from what you had. And I took out all the prevention section, because that's going to be covered by Connie Kellum in the next talk. And I took out all of the Hep C activity data, because that's going to be covered by Marion Peters. So you have the slides I gave, and then there's a supplemental group of slides. So all the data is there, and I apologize if you have to flip back and forth a bit. So let's start with some epidemiology, the big picture from CROI. And couldn't start with a better slide than this, life expectancy of someone with HIV. And this is from the NA Accord study. NA is North America. There's been lots of life expectancy data that we've seen both at meetings and also published in the medical literature. But this caught my eye because it really focuses on the US and Canada and because the, the sample size was so large. So as you can see here, over 65,000 HIV-infected people living in the U.S. and Canada were followed for over 10 years, from 96 to 2007. And among that group of patients, there were just over 8,100 deaths. And they used that data to model what the life expectancy would be for someone who's age 20 and HIV-infected and appropriately managed with antiretroviral therapy. And look what's happened over time. So in the early heart era, 96 to 99, the life expectancy increased markedly, as we all know, increasing to plus 27 years. So someone who was 20 could expect to live into their late 40s with the development of effective antiretroviral therapy. That's impressive, but look what's happened since. As the therapies that we have today have become more convenient, more potent, and more free of toxicities, the life expectancy has increased markedly. To 2006 and 2007, according to this group, it is now plus 52 years. So someone who's 20 years old, adequately managed with ART, can now expect to live into their early 70s, which is very close to what we expect from the general population. So that, I think, is a great message to be able to tell our patients today, particularly those who may be newly infected or newly starting ART for the first time. They did some subset analyses, which I think are also pretty revealing. If you look at men and women, they were comparable in all the years except for the most recent data they had in 2006-2007, where men had a slight advantage with plus 55 years of life expectancy compared with women who had plus 46. And then there were some other differences in terms of risk behavior groups. Injection drug users at plus 43 had a lower increased life expectancy than men who have sex with men who had uh, an 
life expectancy increase of 59 years. So again, important information that could be tailored to, to different people. Um, MSM could be expect to live now into their late 70s, which uh, again is important information. African Americans had a lower life expectancy at plus 51 years compared with whites at 56 or Latinos at 61. And then as you would guess clinically, those who had a CD4 less than 100 had the lowest life expectancy at plus 19 years compared with those with CD4s over 350 with plus 42. So again, important information I think that we can share with our patients and really good news to say the life expectancy of someone with HIV today really is approaching that of the general population if they're effectively managed. So I know there's a, a lot of folks from the CDC here today and one, uh, there were many presentations, but one that particularly caught my eye was an update of the CDC's medical monitoring project. And this is based on 2009 data. As you know, there's about 1.2 million Americans who are HIV infected. And of those, about 80%, 940 plus thousand, have been diagnosed. So about 20% of Americans with HIV infection don't know that they have it. And that's decreased actually in recent years. It used to be as high as 25% or higher. So that's important. Bullet three, I think, is the most sobering. So of those people, who know that they're HIV infected, only 44% are actually in regular care. So more than half of people who, Americans, who know they're HIV infected are not receiving regular care. That, that's a big problem, clearly. Then the news gets better. If they are receiving regular care, almost 90% have been prescribed ART within the prior year. And of them, looking at all Americans on ART, 71% have a suppressed viral load to less than 200 copies per mil. So clearly, if we can get people into care, we are prescribing, and people are doing really very well on our therapies. The vast majority are suppressed on those therapies. But if you do the math, and you simply look at what percentage of people in this country who are HIV-infected have suppressed viral loads on ART, it's a sobering number. Only 24% of all HIV-infected people have a suppressed viral load on ART. And so that is going to call into question the whole idea of treatment as prevention. Can we really treat enough people to have an effect on reducing transmission of HIV? Significantly less likely to be prescribed ART or have a suppressed viral load, African-Americans were less likely than whites and women less than men. There was a plenary discussion by Matthias Egger, who is a Swiss epidemiologist, who looked at the starting CD4 cell counts. When do people start ART around the world? United States came in second, and we, in 2009, which is the data he was reviewing, the average CD4 at the start of ART was 307, which is actually somewhat improved from previous looks. The country, number one country in the world in terms of starting people at the highest CD4, you'll be surprised, Rwanda was highest. But U.S. came in second. Okay. Transmitted drug resistance data, this is also from the CDC. And important for us to know, for our patients who are presenting for the first time treatment naive, what is the chance that they may have been infected with a drug-resistant virus? That is, what is the prevalence of uh, transmitted drug resistance? So they took a look at treatment naive patients with newly diagnosed HIV infection in recent years, 2006 to 2009, from a group of five states and three cities, so eight representative areas across the country. They also looked at recent infection, which they defined as documented HIV antibody test within six months versus everybody else who they assumed had long-standing um, infection. This is probably the biggest sample size, again, that's been looked at so far. So over 10,000 um, HIV newly diagnosed patients 
contributed data to this analysis. And as you can see, the bottom line was that 16% had transmitted drug resistance. And that's similar to what has been found in recent other studies by the CDC and others for Americans. So about 16% of our patients who've never taken ART before have likely been infected with a drug-resistant viral strain. Of those, the vast majority, 84%, had single-class drug resistance. And then, interestingly, there was no difference by year. You will hear it debated right now in the community. Is resistance going up? Is it going down? And different studies have found different things. This particular analysis of Americans showed no difference in transmitted drug resistance 2006, 2007, 2008, all the way through 2009, that that 16% number was stable. As you might expect, people who were more recently infected had a greater risk for transmitted drug resistance. So, for instance, they had a 29% higher prevalence of drug resistance overall, and they also had significantly higher single-class resistance, two-class resistance, and NNRTI resistance. So as you know, the current guidelines suggest that we do a genotypic resistance test on a treatment-naive patient, and probably the best time to do it is the first or second time you see the patient. So that should be part of our initial workup, according to the data. And clearly what you're looking for is transmitted drug resistance, and that will help you guide therapy when you're ready to start ART. One other piece of epidemiologic data that I thought was really helpful, and this made the front pages of many of the papers in the U.S., was uh, HPTN, that's the HIV Prevention Trials Network, study number 064. And this was presented by my colleague Sally Hodder, who's just across the Hudson River in Newark, New Jersey. Women's HIV Zero Incidence Study, which they abbreviate as ISIS, so this is the ISIS study, and what you can see there is that he looked at six states, which are really along the eastern seaboard, all the way from here in Georgia up to my state of New York. And they defined eligibility areas within those states using U.S. Census poverty data. And they also used state health department HIV prevalence data and tried to identify specific census tracts and zip codes where there would be a high risk for HIV transmission. So they were targeting women that they thought would be at risk for HIV. They found over 2,000 women were enrolled in this study. You can see they were young women aged 18 to 44, and relatively recently they were enrolled from 2009 to 2010. 88% of the women enrolled were black, and 12% were Hispanic or Latina. The surprising finding from this study was that 32 of these women, or 1.5%, were newly diagnosed HIV-infected at baseline, so did not know they were HIV-infected, but entered the study and were found to be positive. That gave a seroincidence of 0.24%, and what the investigators noted was that that was five times higher than previous estimates that the CDC had for black women. And the investigators went on to say, well, that's a comparable rate of HIV incidence to some African countries, including the Congo at 0.28% and Kenya at 0.53%. That was a surprise. The uh, critics of this data would say, well, it's a very selected population, and possibly there is selection bias in terms of that, but I think it raised awareness that HIV could, incidence could be higher in specific targeted communities, even in women. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about ART. One of the posters that I found particularly useful was from the Swiss HIV cohort study. If you're like me, you look at those genotypes, and occasionally our patients who are treatment naive will have some minor mutations identified in the protease. And it's crossed your mind, are these significant? Do I need to pay attention to these minor PI mutations? And there's been literature back and forth, but I think this one poster really answers the question. 
So the Swiss used their cohort study and followed patients for over 10 years. They identified over 1,100 patients who were starting their very first ARG regimen with two nukes and a PI, and it was either boosted or non-boosted. They, they allowed both, and that they had a baseline genotype. As you can imagine from the years when this was done, the most common protease inhibitors used by this group were boosted lopinavir and nelfinavir, not so commonly used today in 2012. But what they did was to look, and that's what's shown in the graph here, you can see a number of those minor mutations listed. So there's substitutions at positions 10, 36, 60, 62, 63, 64, 71, 77, 93. None of these would qualify as major PI mutations, but all are listed as minor PI mutations. And what they looked at was, did they have an effect on the left-hand side of time to virologic suppression? And did they have an effect on the right-hand side of time to virologic failure? The vertical line in each case is one. So if the confidence interval crosses one, then there is no effect of these mutations on subsequent time to suppression or time to failure. And you can see from the back of the room that in each case, for each of these mutations, they all cross one. So the interpretation here is that none of these significantly were associated with an increased time to failure or with the hazard of failure at all. So that's important news. The conclusion is these minor PI mutations that we've probably been ignoring, it's okay to ignore them. They really don't have clinical implications. Okay, new medication on the scene called the quad. Guess how many medicines are in that pill? It's a trick question, right? Um, so this is an investigational new phrase, single tablet regimen, or STR. We've called these FDCs, fixed dose combinations in the past. You may see STR as an equivalent term. So the four medications in this one pill are tenofovir, emtricitabine, or FTC, elvitegravir, which is an investigational integrase inhibitor, and cobacistat, which is an investigational booster that acts a lot like ritonavir in terms of boosting other drugs like the integrase inhibitors or the protease inhibitors. Importantly, though, cobacistat has no antiretroviral activity in and of itself. So a word about COBE. Again, it, like ritonavir, it's an inhibitor of the CYP3A hepatic enzyme system but doesn't have any effects against HIV itself. It's a weak inhibitor of CYP2D6, which uh, is important for certain drugs, but it's weak, so we can probably ignore that activity. So it's being used exclusively as a booster of other drugs in these regimens. Importantly for all of us to know, it inhibits a renal tubular transporter called toxin extrusion protein 1, or MATE1. Why is that important? It's inhibiting that transporter, meaning that creatinine is not being excreted as it was before the person took cobacistat. Therefore, creatinine levels of someone taking cobacistat will go up by a small amount, 0.1 to 0.2 mg per deciliter. They've looked carefully. This is not associated with a change in glomerular filtration rates, but it will complicate, on occasion, management of patients. Why? Because remember what the first drug is in this pill, tenofovir. So you're going to see creatinines go up on cobacistat to a little degree, but remember they're also on tenofovir. So this may challenge us sometimes to work up renal insufficiency when people are on these compounds. So here were the big phase three head-to-head -head studies of the quad versus two regimens that are preferred in the guidelines and which we use every day. <clears throat> this one was presented by Paul Sachs, and it's the uh, quad versus the triple combination of tenofovir, FTC, and efavirenz all in one pill, the drug that we use quite commonly. They enrolled 700 treatment-naive patients to this study. Uh, with any CD4 cell count, and they were randomized to receive either the quad once a day 
or the efavirenz triple once a day, and this was double-blinded and placebo-controlled. So everybody took two pills on this study. The uh, patients were stratified by their baseline viral load coming into the study, either above or below 100,000 copies per mil. It was conducted in the United States and Puerto Rico, and the primary endpoint was the percent of patients in each group who dropped their viral load to less than 50 copies per mil at a single time point at week 48, and that's called a snapshot analysis. So all they do is take one picture at week 48 to assess virologic suppression in the two groups. This was designed as a non-inferiority study, and the margin for non-inferiority was preset at 12%. This was an interesting group of patients, not typically reflective of some of the patients that we see today. So almost 90% were men, so relatively few women on the study. <clears throat> and the majority of the men were actually white men. The baseline viral load was 4.7 logs, or about 70,000 copies per mil. And this study had a higher CD4 count at baseline, the patients, than many of the studies we've seen at 390. So you have to keep that in mind, interpreting the results. So here's the snapshot on the left, how many patients in each group were suppressed to less than 50. The quads in orange, and you can see that 88% of quad patients versus 84% of the favorins patients were suppressed below 50. So basically everybody did well on this study through the end of 48 weeks. Over on the right-hand side is the confidence interval for the difference between these two. <clears throat> and you can see that the number is 3.6, and that the lower level of the confidence interval is way above the non-inferiority threshold of minus 12. <clears throat> so they could conclude that the quad was non-inferior to the efavirenz-based regimen based on that change. <clears throat> Note a significant difference down at the bottom. CD4 cell count, if you did a snapshot of that at week 48, plus 239 cells in the quad group, versus plus 206 cells in the efavirenz group. Both groups did well, significantly higher in the quad compared with the efavirenz group. What about drug resistance? So failing these, res these two regimens, um, which uh, a small number of people did, had different resistance profiles, as you would imagine, because the drug classes are quite different. So you can see in these two columns, uh, roughly 4 to 5% had experienced virologic failure in each group. Only 2% of those actually had demonstrated drug resistance. So what does that mean? That means that about half the patients who failed had wild-type virus, suggesting that there were adherence issues. But if you characterize those patients who did have drug resistance at failure, the quad when a person failed the quad, they had a significant number of integrase-associated mutations, as you would expect. And you can see some of the mutations, the substitutions in integrase that we're used to seeing with integrase inhibitor failure, substitutions at 92, 66, 148, and 155. Along with that, down at the bottom, all of the eight patients who had failure and demonstrated mutations had the M184V or I substitution, which, as you know, confers resistance to FTC and 3TC. And interestingly, three of the patients had the K65R mutation, which, as you know, is associated with tenofovir resistance. So integrase inhibitor resistance, common, and FTC or 3TC resistance was also common with failure. What did people fail with? In terms of the efavirenz arm, well, these are quite similar to previous studies, and as you would expect, you see NNRTI-associated mutations with the K103N being most common, and you see a couple of patients also had the M184V. So, again, I'll emphasize relatively few patients failed with resistance mutations in either group, but the implications are quite different in terms of cross-resistance, depending on the class. What about side effects? between the two groups. So here's a listing of the side effects that occurred in more than 
of subjects and were associated with the study drugs in the two groups. And I've pointed out the ones that are statistically significantly different. So you can see there was significantly increased nausea in the quad group compared with the efavirenz group, so 21% versus 14. And then as you might expect, abnormal dreams, insomnia, dizziness were all more frequently seen in the efavirenz group and so was rash, 6% versus 12%. So the typical profile for an efavirenz-based regimen, and then slightly more GI side effects in the quad-based regimen. Discontinuations due to side effects were relatively infrequent, only 4 to 5% in both groups. And you can see adverse events leading to discontinuations, again, was sort of a smattering of different types of reactions between the two groups. <clears throat> Focusing back on the creatinine elevations, you can see that the creatinine increased 0.14 mg per deciliter in the quad group versus essentially no change in the efavirenz group. So that, again, would be expected because of the use of the cobacistat. And there were smaller increases in total cholesterol and LDL in the quad group versus the efavirenz group. So some of these will help us sort out which of these may be most appropriate for a specific patient. Bottom line, the quad was non-inferior to the efavirenz-based regimen. And then the second <clears throat> presentation, which actually was a poster, was presented by Edwin de Jesus, who's your neighbor just south of here in Orlando. And this was the same design study, but this time the quad took on another popular regimen, which is tenofovir FTC and boosted atazanavir. So this time the integrase inhibitor taking on the PI-based regimen. <clears throat> Same design, 700 treatment-naive patients. This was an international study. Once again, they were stratified by high viral load levels, over 100,000 copies per mil. And the primary endpoint was the same, that snapshot analysis of suppression to less than 50 at week 48, and once again, this was a non-inferiority study with a threshold set at minus 12%. Once again, a very specific kind of study, 90% were men, so only 10% women. The baseline viral load was uh, slightly higher than in the other study. I think I said it was 70,000 in the other study, 50,000 in the first study, sorry for that. This was the study where it's about 70,000. And the CD4 count, again, a high 370. So once again, here's the snapshot. And you can see 90% of the quad versus 87% of the atazanavir group suppressed to less than 50 by week 48. So everybody did well. And once again, here's the difference between the two groups. And the lower level is way above the minus 12%. So they could conclude that the quad in this large phase three study was non-inferior to an atazanavir-based regimen as well. What about CD4s? No difference between the two groups. Resistance, once again, was different. And you saw the same thing on this study that we saw in the last study in terms of people that failed the quad and had resistance mutations, a smattering of integrase inhibitor-associated mutations, and again, the M184V contrast with what you see with the atazanavir group. People who failed atazanavir did not have mutations. No mutations were seen either in the protease or in the, M uh, in the reverse transcriptase. No M184Vs were seen. This has been seen in a lot of treatment-naive protease inhibitor studies and again just tells us resistance is different depending on what people fail with. I didn't put a slide in, but the side effect profile of these two, not very different. So both were very well tolerated. So here we have it. The quad challenges two different first-line regimens, a favorins-based and an atazanavir-based, and in each case was non-inferior. All of these results are currently sitting with the FDA, and they are currently looking at them. They have scheduled a formal advisory committee meeting to uh, talk about these results publicly, and we will expect a decision sometime this summer on the quad. Given everything I just showed you, you would have to assume that this drug certainly looks both safe and efficacious, and this would be, as you know, our third one-pill-once-a-day regimen that we could offer our patients, and it would be the first integrase inhibitor-based regimen. 
Who do we use it for? I'm going to leave that to Jeff and Mike. So they have a couple of cases where they're going to get into, okay, treatment naive patient, here are the options, what do we pick? And so I think time will tell the best use of this drug. Another integrase inhibitor that's one big step behind L-vitegravir is a compound called dolutegravir, or DTG. How does this distinguish itself among the integrase inhibitors? Well, the first thing to know is that raltegravir and L-vitegravir, the one we just considered in the quad, are completely cross-resistant to one another. So if you fail one, you will be cross-resistant to the other. Dolutegravir distinguishes itself as having activity against some resistant strains that a person would develop after they've failed either raltegravir or L-vitegravir. The other difference, raltegravir, as you know, twice a day, no booster. L-vitegravir, once a day, requires a booster. Dolutegravir, once a day, no booster required. So each offers something different in terms of its properties. This was an update of the phase two study of dolutegravir, much smaller study than what I just showed you, 200 patients who are all treatment naive with detectable viral loads over 1,000 and CD4s over 200. And they were randomized to receive two nukes and then one of three doses of dolutegravir, as you can see in yellow, orange, and brown, versus a standard regimen of two nukes and a favarins shown in light blue. Fortunately, it doesn't matter what arm people randomized to, all did well, and you can see that roughly 80% of all patients on this study suppressed their viral load to less than 50 by the end of an updated 96 weeks. Interestingly, they saw no integrase mutations in the group that was on dolutegravir, even in the case of failure. In terms of adverse events leading to discontinuations, they were fewer at 3% with dolutegravir versus 10% with efavirenz. And just to make it complicated, dolutegravir also inhibits a different renal transport protein. So people taking dolutegravir will also experience a slight increase in their creatinine without a change in GFR. And again, we're going to need to know that because we may be combining it with tenofovir on occasion. So on this study, creatinines went up 0.1 to 0.15. Would you really notice 0.1 to 0.15 in your clinic? Well, you might. Some of you said yes, so good for you. <laughs> so dolutegravir's uh, now in phase three studies um, in treatment-naive patients. Those are fully enrolled and we're anticipating the results, haven't seen them yet. It's also being used, as you'd like to see, in integrase inhibitor experience patients, and some of those results have come out and look promising. Also, another fixed-dose combination is on the horizon, this time with dolutegravir, and it's abacavir, 3TC, and dolutegravir, all in one pill, one pill once a day treatment. Now, why did they pick those three drugs? Oh, right, because the same drug company makes all three. So this will be also tested and maybe another single pill regimen that's available to us. An investigational compound called GS7340 is a prodrug of tenofovir. So it's swallowed and then like the current formulation, which is TDF, is broken down after swallowing into tenofovir, which is the active compound inside cells. So this was a very early study looking at this prodrug and comparing its antiretroviral activity to tenofovir. Note the small size. It's a pilot study, 36 patients who were treatment naive, and they only took a single drug for a relatively short time, just 10 days of monotherapy. So as you can see, they were randomized either to get full-dose tenofovir once a day, one of three doses of GS7340, the new prodrug, or I should say investigational prodrug, versus a placebo. And so their first objective was to look at antiviral responses. So this was the um, average decrease in viral load. And as you can see, as you'd expect, placebo had no change. Tenofovir had about a 0.5 log drop. And the new compound 
had significant antiviral activity, particularly at the higher two doses of about a log decrease. Now you're asking yourself, do we really need a tenofovir prodrug? Why are, why are they even looking into this? Here's why. If you look at plasma concentrations of the different arms of the study, so same colors as before, here's tenofovir in the plasma. You can see, and this is on a log scale, you get very high levels of tenofovir in the blood, in the plasma. With this new formulation, this new prodrug, the plasma levels are much lower. So the thinking here is perhaps toxicity would be less, both to kidney and bone, because the plasma levels of this compound are less than tenofovir. Well, that's interesting. What about the cells? So they actually looked at penetration inside peripheral blood mononuclear cells. Remember, that's where the action is. That's where this drug actually works is intracellularly. And now what you see is that the intracellular levels of this prodrug are actually much higher than the plasma levels. And you can see in comparison, tenofovir is low compared with the, with the plasma levels. So the thinking here is, Less drug in the blood, more drug in the cells. Could that equate with less toxicity to renal and bone? So that's an idea right now, and this will be pursued as this drug continues to be developed. Co-infections. So I'm leaving hep C to Dr. Peters, and I'm just going to tell you that the one co-infection I'll consider is zoster, which continues to be an issue. So ACTG 5247 which uh, the Emory group did here and UAB as well, and we did too, and in fact the whole ACTG put lots of patients on this, was to look at the herpes zoster vaccine, which as you know is a live virus vaccine with two doses versus placebo. And so patients were randomized, three out of four got the vaccine and one got the placebo. And the patients enrolled had CD4s above 200 and had undetectable viral loads. So we enrolled uh, nearly 400 patients who had a positive VZV serology or had a history of zoster at least a year before entry. And this was primarily a safety study. Was it safe to administer the herpes zoster vaccine? So what you can see is in terms of adverse events, either serious or grade three were similar um, in the vaccine group versus the placebo group. And the only exception were injection site reactions, which were more common with the vaccination in 42% of patients compared with placebo, 12%. Antibody responses were similar um, compared uh, to the general population who received this vaccine. And the conclusion was that the vaccine was safe and immunogenic in HIV-positive patients. What about pharmacokinetics? Just a couple of highlights here. One is, as you know, fluticasone is contraindicated with ritonavir because the plasma concentrations of intranasal fluticasone are increased three and a half times um, in the presence of even low-dose ritonavir. And there's been cases of adrenal insufficiency and Cushing's disease in people that use fluticasone. This is contraindicated with a ritonavir-inclusive regimen. But an alternative inhaled steroid Beclomethazone um, is largely hydrolyzed by a different set of enzymes. And so these investigators thought that there probably wouldn't be an interaction with boosted protease inhibitors. They tested it versus darunavir in a healthy volunteer study. So one group got the inhaled steroid alone. One group got inhaled steroid plus low-dose ritonavir. And one group got it with boosted darunavir. And here's the results. So uh, beta Meclozone alone had uh, equivalent levels to what was seen in the general population. Ritonavir alone boosted the levels by a factor of two, but interestingly, boosted darunavir not significantly different. So the feeling here is that it's safe to use this drug, meclomethazone, with boosted darunavir as an inhaled steroid. And it also shows us that boosted protease inhibitors may act differently than just using ritonavir by itself. There's a lot of information about the new HCV protease inhibitors. And as I mentioned, Dr. Peters is going to go into some more details about this. Healthy volunteer data with telaprevir was presented um, at last year's CROI. And just to remind you, many of the protease inhibitors 
actually had an effect on lowering telaprevir levels significantly, and telaprevir also lowered the concentrations of some protease inhibitors. So this alarmed us to use HIV protease inhibitors together with telaprevir. And in fact, this led to, with bocepravir, a dear doctor letter that came out right before the CROI meeting. And this once again showed us that bocepravir could be used with some drugs, but actually cautioned us about efavirenz where levels were lowered almost 50% when those two drugs were used together. And so the conclusion of this from healthy volunteers was that one needed to be careful with both telaprevir and bocepravir and understand the PK interactions with different antiretroviral regimens. So what we saw at the CROI meeting was more data on bocepravir and look at the reductions in protease inhibitors. You can see between 49 and 59% of some of the common ones reduced with bocepravir. So that's a problem. Probably shouldn't be used together. Um, and that was also true that the protease inhibitors lowered bocepravir levels, particularly lopinavir and darunavir, 30 to 45%. I'm going to emphasize these were all done in healthy volunteers. Dr. Peters is going to show you some activity data in HIV-infected people. What about raltegravir? Well, the good news is no significant interaction with bocepravir. So that may be a drug that we can fall back on. Again, Dr. Peters will say more. Lastly, what about HIV eradication? As you know, the number of people on the planet that have been cured of HIV is one. Everyone knows this patient. So he was uh, a San Franciscan living in Berlin who developed um, AML, was suppressed on ART, and then underwent total body irradiation, rounds of ablative chemotherapy, a stem cell transplant, not just once but twice, which was complicated by rejection, and ultimately his viral load was suppressed off meds and his CD4 rose back into the normal range. And our patients ask, can I do that? <laughs> and we say no. It's associated with a 30% mortality. But it does show us proof of concept that perhaps cure could be done. So a lot of research going in that direction. I'll just summarize a couple of things. This study from Pittsburgh just said, well, if we just do bone marrow transplants, would that work? And so they looked at people suppressed on ART with, um, who developed lymphoma and required an autologous bone marrow transplant. And in 10 patients, they did the transplant and then looked for the presence of HIV DNA, and they found it in all 10. So it wasn't just the transplant that led to this so-called cure. One group is really focusing on the latent cell reservoir. Remember, in an infected person on ART, even with the suppressed viral load, you have about a million cells that are latently infected. And the approach is right now, can you identify that reservoir, activate it, and then hope that cellular mechanisms will actually kill those activated cells, and could that lead to cure? So there's a compound that's uh, available for T-cell leukemia called Veronostat, which was tested in 10 patients in North Carolina who got a single dose of it. And so what you see here is the presence of their latent cells in yellow before the Veronostat, so very low levels of HIV, and then after the Veronostat, and they were increased by a factor of about five. So they did, were able to show for the first time that you could identify a latent cell reservoir and actually turn it on with another drug. And that may be the first baby step towards a cure. And then another group from the NIH said, well, uh, sorry, this is from Hopkins, said that, well, it may not be enough just to turn on this reservoir. You might have to have a specific CTL response that comes and kills those cells. So that was a suggestion made in one of the plenaries as well. And then finally, as we know, people with the Delta 32 mutation are relatively immune to HIV infection, and the group at Penn has been actually looking at trying to uh, use a um, gene transfer experiment to transfer that deletion to people's cells. And so they took out CD4 cells from people, used a, a vector that has a nuclease that chops out the gene that codes for CCR5. And they did that in a small handful of patients. And after a year, about 30% of their CD4 cells actually lacked 
the CCR5 receptor. So seemingly that could be done. And even when you took away antiretrovirals, there was a single patient who was able to continue to have a suppressed viral load. When they went back and looked at him, he at baseline was heterozygous for the Delta 32 deletion. So again, these are baby steps towards cure, but a lot going on there. So let me uh, stop there and say that was all of Croy in uh, 43 minutes. Thank you. So I think it was appropriate for Tripp to give this. You notice his name is Tripp because it comes out of his family, but his first name really is Roy. So in essence, this was a Croy update. Thank you very much. I'm sorry right. to hear that, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. Um, and my, my granddad, who lived in Georgia, was Roy Sr. There you go. So. See, it all comes back. A um, couple, couple quick questions that I have, and if you have questions, you can either come to the microphone or um, can uh, uh, sit, ask a question card. But regarding that last study you just presented from Penn, um, one of the concerns about deleting Delta, you know, the 32 CCR5 uh, story is that maybe it makes them susceptible to infections, in particular JC virus or other things. Did they express concerns about that at all or no? Yeah, they really didn't talk about that. You're saying what might the um, repercussions of taking out the CCR5 receptor um, I guess what they didn't mention it in the presentation. What's a, a bit reassuring is that there is a group of people, of course, mostly of Scandinavian origin, who walk around without the CCR5 receptor and seem to be immunologically normal compared with everyone else. The one difference that they've seen was with West Nile virus. Not that they were more susceptible to it, right. but people who had the deletion had increased morbidity, more sickness. Right from West Nile. But otherwise, it's really not, no immune defects have been associated with lacking the CCR5 receptor. Right, question here. Hi, Barb Marston from um, the Atlanta VA and CDC, and I wrote this on a card, but my writing's terrible. So I'm proud to say I fully understand why somebody failing a, um, integrase inhibitor regimen gets integrase inhibitors. But I'm curious if there's any specific rationale for the difference in the NRTI mutations that are seen when the quad pill is compared to the other regimens. So uh, the question was about the comparative quad data in terms of resistance mutations that came out. And was there really a difference in the nuke mutations between the quad, the integrase inhibitor-based, versus the efavirenz-based? And I guess I would just summarize and say the numbers are so low, you know, it was eight versus two, that it's hard to make definitive conclusions. Although some of our colleagues have said, wow, it looks like there's more nuke mutations with the integrase. But I think the data are too few to really conclude that. Remember, very few people in either group failed. And of those, only half of those in each group had any mutations at all. So it's an uncommon event. Tripp, I had a question. Um, you mentioned the new integrase options that will be emerging. Do we know anything about the potential to sequence any of the integrases at this point? So remember that raltegravir, the one we have, and elvitegravir, if a person fails either one, they are likely to develop mutations pretty quickly. So this class has a lower barrier to resistance. In fact, when you characterize it, a patient will almost always have two integrase mutations right off the bat. So those two you have to think of as completely cross-resistant, so you can't sequence those. The interesting one is dolutegravir, because it does have activity in the test tube, against raltegravir and elvitegravir resistant mutations, some of them. We have pilot data that I didn't show you today in a small group of patients where they doubled the dose of dolutegravir and actually were able to recapture uh, virologic suppression even in people who'd failed the other two. So that's being more formally tested in bigger studies, but does suggest that maybe sequencing would be important and also that we're going to have to get used to doing integrase inhibitor genotypes on people that fail uh, integrase inhibitor-containing regimens. Please. Andy Vernon from CDC. Uh, just to let Jeff know, I didn't file travel for this trip. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I have three quick questions. The first is, uh, can you comment on the 12% non-inferiority margin? Why is 12% an acceptable difference? Uh, second, in, with relation to the creatinine bumps seen with the two new uh, integrase inhibitors, 
what's the range of that bump? Because it's that that's really going to be of concern, because we're all going to see one patient who bumps a lot, and, and, and that's, I'm wondering what the range observed was. And then finally, I'd really like to know, how did your grandmother know you have to go through Atlanta to get to hell? <laughs> it's, it's what you have to now take to get across Petrie's. You have to go on Delta just to get across Petrie's. <clears throat> so uh, question number one was, why did they pick a non-inferiority margin of 12%? I think that's a valid question. The FDA guidance suggests that in general for non-inferiority studies, the margin for non-inferiority should be 10 to 12 percent. And if you've noticed in studies over the years, people have used those different numbers. Some have used 10, some have used 12. A recent one used 20, which I thought was interesting. And I, you might criticize that whole approach of 10 to 12 because our um, response rates are so high right now that you might say, well, why aren't we going lower than that? You know, do we really, would we really say it's acceptable to be 12% less good than what we have today? But that's the FDA guidance for approval, so that's what they picked. Um, question two was, what was the range of creatinine um, increases? And I don't think that was actually given in any of the presentations. So what I showed you was the average, but clearly there will be people who will bump their creatinine higher, either on Cobacistat or on dolutegravir, and remember they do it two different ways, two different receptors. So I don't know, We're gonna, this is going to be a challenge to us to, to follow uh, kidney function over time. The one thing I will say that may save us is either with cobacistat or dolutegravir, that increase occurs right away. So remember, the creatinine will go up 0.1 to 0.2, maybe higher in some people, but then it plateaus. Remember, the creatinine increase with tenofovir actually takes a while to go up. So maybe the timing will help us. And uh, question number three, my poor grandmother. Noni, he didn't need it, honestly. So he's up instead of down, so I guess he didn't have to switch planes. Um, so, a Trip, um, on the quad study, was there a difference in responsiveness if the viral load was above or below 100,000? Right, there weren't differences, uh, and I didn't present that data to you, between the groups with the higher viral loads versus the lower viral loads. And then also, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this or not, but you'll notice that some of the slides that the trip presented were not in your handout. And the reason for that is that we always do a uh, um, sort of a quality check, if you will, and some peer review on the night before, and we want to make sure there's no duplication. So some of the slides that trip was going to show on prevention you're going to hear in the next talk. So he added some more information. So apologize, we'll try to post some of these on the web. No, you got them. You got, you, you got okay, a separate handouts. handout Perfect. with those okay. slides. Thanks. Okay, Tripp, one of the questions was, are there any other medications that are MATP-dependent for excretion that the quad might interact with? Yeah, great question. I don't know the answer to that. Do you? No. Does anybody? No. So we're learning, right? In HIV, we can learn anything, and now they're expecting us to learn all these obscure renal transporters. We'll be good at it. I mean, the other thing is that a lot of the things that we learn in medical school or, or nursing school um, come back to haunt us as these drugs come out, like this enzyme and uh, CYF3A4 and all the things you've had to learn over the years. So it's kind of continuing education in a really pretty cool way. Or remember choosing to go into infectious disease because you never wanted to think about cholesterol? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> now it's renal. Let's think about renal. Um, we had another question. Do non-T cells, basically other cells that express CD4 receptors or other receptors, is, there, is that partially the explanation for drug toxicity or for any of the clinical manifestations of HIV? This is a more general question, I think. So there are CD4 receptors on the surface of other cells, and certainly HIV, although we always think about CD4s, occasionally infects other cells as well, as you know. Macrophages being the ones that we worry the most about because they traffic throughout the body, including into the genital tract and the central nervous system. And then there are other occasional cells that HIV can infect as well. So what that question gets at is are some of these response or some of these approaches to cure which are just targeting the CD4 positive lymphocytes will they be successful and I think that's an open question yeah okay thank you Tripp